Good afternoon, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show features stories from Eastport, Maine. On the edge of the Canadian border and Maine's easternmost town, Eastport is on the shores of Copscook Bay, Passamaquoddy Bay, and the Bay of Fundy, and its history is one of dependence on the sea. Our first story is called Eastport Reinventing a Waterfront. It's brought to us by our radio storytelling friend Galen Koch, whose podcast series From the Sea Up is produced in partnership with the Island Institute and has been featured on Coastal Conversations before. In this new episode, we learn how Eastport has transitioned from a waterfront of empty factories to a vibrant, multi-use working waterfront positioned to respond and adapt to a very uncertain future. The second story we'll feature later on in the show is called The Drama of Eastport Tides and was pulled out of the Coastal Conversations archives from the Salts and Water podcast produced in 2017 by radio storyteller Rob Rosenthal for Experience Maritime Maine. This one features Eastport's defining geographical characteristic, its phenomenal tide, and how Eastport's residents connect to the ever-moving ocean. Let's jump right in to our first story about Eastport's working waterfront with Galen Coke. You're listening to From the Sea Up, a podcast from the Island Institute. I'm Galen Coke. In this season of From the Sea Up, we're focusing on Maine's working waterfronts, bringing you episodes from unique home ports up and down the coast. Maine's working waterfront is historic and iconic, ingrained in the fabric of many of the state's rural and island communities. Its lobster boats and the long-gone sardine industry, diesel mechanics and boatyards filled to the brim with yachts, its buying stations and lobster co-ops, seaweed, oyster and mussel farms, clamors and worm harvesters. For many, these jobs are institutions, intrinsic to the character of the Maine coast. A thriving and accessible working waterfront is crucial to sustaining Maine's fishing and marine industries. But for Maine's fishermen, boat builders, harvesters, and sea farmers, safe, reliable, and open access to the water is not a given. This season, we invite you to the docks, piers, boatyards, sea farms, and fish houses from down east to southern Maine, and ask you to consider what is the future of the working waterfront? And what role do we have in shaping it? If you've ever looked at a map of the coast of Maine, you've probably noticed that there's a lot of coastline. Maine has 3,478 miles of coastline, 
to be exact, and more than 5,000 miles if you count the islands. I count the islands. And in the far northeastern corner of the state, in the area Mainers refer to as Down East, there is a small little waterfront that is jam-packed with commercial and recreational activity. This is the city of Eastport, located on a 3.7-square-mile island and connected to the mainland by a causeway and road that passes through the Pleasant Point Passamaquoddy Reservation, Zabayak. Eastport's waterfront has changed a lot in the last century. In 1898, the population peaked at just over 5,300 people. Now, that population is just 1,300. I wanted to know more about Eastport's history, why this small city has experienced such a dramatic shift in population size. Why did so many people leave? What was here before? And what lies ahead for this working waterfront? Eastport is one of the most unique ports along Maine's coast. I'll get to that. And in this episode, we'll learn how this town, once full of empty buildings, has transitioned and adapted to an increasingly uncertain future. To find out more about Eastport, I met with Hugh French. If anyone knows about Eastport's history, it's Hugh. In the late 1970s and 1980s, he interviewed dozens of Eastporters about life and work here at the turn of the century. Uh, this is Hugh French, and today is May 1st, 1980, and I'm going to be interviewing Helen Huntley of Clark Street in Eastport. Now Hugh French is the director of the Tides Institute, a cultural and arts institution he co-founded in 2002. The Tides Institute boasts a campus of eight historic buildings in Eastport. So we've redone this. We had to put a steel beam in, in here, otherwise it was going to collapse. The organization has restored these 19th century buildings to house artists and residents, exhibitions, businesses, and community gathering spaces. And we're still thinking about trying to do some sort of eatery, but um, we've got to put an elevator in, we've got to put sprinkler systems in. Hugh is taking me and Olivia Jolly, this podcast assistant producer, and Nicole Wolf, our photographer, for a tour of the waterfront today. So if we're on Dana Street This is Green here. Street. This is Green Street. Yeah. This is Dana Street. Yes. Okay. What's down, can you orient me just quickly? Is this the south, would we go that way to get to the south yes, end? Yes, Okay. Yes. That way? To the north end. Yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've seen a compass a couple of times. Like Eastport, a lot of towns on the main coast experience significant population declines in the 20th century. Entire industries have come and gone, and the infrastructure on our working waterfronts reflects those changes. It's a history that feels far away when you're looking at the rundown buildings or wharves dotting the coastline. But for many people living and working on the water, that history is not so distant. These bygone industries formed the culture and identity of multiple generations of coastal Mainers. Hugh French's interviews from the late 70s and early 80s capture the stories of the hundred years when sardines were king in Eastport. The industry employed fishermen, fish smokers, packers and canners, usually women and children, factory managers, and factory workers. You would have, you said you, so you would have worked in, uh, you said you began at 10 years old yeah. cutting fish, and then at 14 or so you went up? Packing the fish. Packing fish. Yeah. 
had fresh work. I was 74 when I got there. 74? Yeah. See, you couldn't uh, put up too many fish, you know, because the slow work, it wasn't like it is now. Hmm. It took a long time to, to well, pack 10 hogs as a fish. But in late years, it wasn't anything to do. Oh, we had it hard. I guess we did have it hard. That was Alice Bain talking with Hugh French, recounting her 64 years working in the sardine industry. She started when she was just 10 years old and worked in the factory until she was 74. By 1900, there were 75 sardine canneries in Maine. 18 of those in Eastport alone. Throughout the 20th century, sardine factories closed, opened, and changed hands until the last cannery in the state of Maine, in Prospect Harbor, shut its doors in 2010. The decline of the sardine industry, along with other fisheries like cod and mackerel, meant that many waterfront jobs just disappeared. By the early 1980s, when Eastport's last cannery closed, the population had already shrunk from 5,300 in 1898 to just 1,982. Some of the ghosts of Eastport's sardine industry can still be seen on its waterfront, like the enormous abandoned American can plant. What are we looking out over? That's an old American can plant. Okay. Um, that was built in 1908, and that's where they made the cans for the sardine factories. All the factories are gone. The last sardine factory closed in 1982, so that's 40 years ago. And you, it's hard to imagine that there was ever a sardine industry, except for a building like this. I think there's one other later factory building. But just 40 to 50 years ago, there were huge factories and smokehouses all along Water Street, with wharves for sardine carriers to tie up and unload, canneries and labeling factories, and fish traps called weirs in coves and inlets. Eastport even had two pearl essence plants, where sardine scales were turned into glitter for cosmetic products. There was a whole sort of block beyond the downtown, which would be the wharves. And so you could, you could go between wharves and not even touch Water Street. And that's, that's where so much of the commer- commerce happened. Now, as we walk along Eastport's commercial district, we see very few wharves that jut into the sea. That block, as Hugh calls it, has disappeared. The last of the wharves, Wadsworth Wharf, blew away in the famous Groundhog Day gale of 1976. And the decisions of this little city over the past 40 years have shaped a new waterfront. Walking along Water Street, it's astonishing to see the multiple uses that share the densely populated half mile. There are art galleries, a brewery, and several year-round restaurants that, even on a day in mid-May, are bustling with patrons. But there's been a lot of, I mean, not like Portland or anything, but there's been a lot of investment put into this waterfront downtown in the last, well, 40 years. I mean, starting with the seawall and walkway and... I've visited a lot of coastal Maine towns in my lifetime because, well, I'm a Mainer and because I write stories about Maine's coast. Eastport's waterfront is particularly, and for me surprisingly, well-maintained. It's tidy and efficient. And though it may be a surprise, it is not an accident. As early as 1979, the Eastport Planning Board developed a waterfront master plan 
that outlined in great detail the multiple needs for updating and transitioning Water Street's half-mile footprint in the wake of the Groundhog Day gale. On the shore side of Eastport's waterfront buildings is a walking path that winds along the waters of Passamaquoddy Bay. There is a seawall and city parks, a granite amphitheater, a commercial fish pier, and a breakwater that provides safe harbor for over 50 commercial fishing vessels and a berth for small cruise ships. All of these features were possible through public and private investments and local and state grants. That breakwater alone cost $14.95 million to build. Um, Coast Guard building's new. That's a two, two and a half million dollar project. The port put a new building in. They put a million dollars into the Granite Post Office a couple of years ago to restore that. Um, you know, several of these buildings have had, you know, up anywhere from a quarter of a million to over a million put into them. And a lot of these buildings are, you know, changed hands over that period of time too. So there aren't, there are not very many older, sort of really old established buildings, uh, businesses here now. We'll be visiting two of those older businesses to learn what the last 40 years of planning and investment have meant for Eastport. We'll hear from Dean Pike at Moose Island Marine about changing industries here and the challenges for the future. And we'll visit with Chris Gardner, the executive director of the Eastport Port Authority, to learn how the smallest city in Maine continues to pivot and adapt in an unpredictable global economy. At the north end of Eastport's downtown waterfront, behind the road to the breakwater, is a marine store and mechanics shop. You are in Moose Island Marine's uh, mechanic shop. And this right. is, and, you, and your name is? Dean Pike. So this is your shop, Dean? Yeah, I built it. I, 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 I built all these buildings. Moose Island Marine and stores like it are part of the working waterfront that's sometimes overlooked. The parts store, the boat mechanic, the shipyard. All of these are necessary to keep boats in the water. Here in this shop, all we do here is uh, install boats, uh, install engines on boats or smaller boats. You run them in the tank, the owner leaves the, you know, the owner comes, picks them up and, 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 and away you go. Dean Pike has been in Eastport for a long time. He started Moose Island Marine in 1980 after attending Eastport's boat school, where he taught until the school shut down in 2012. When I started here in 1980, uh, people were still handlining. Handlining was still big. And there ain't one left. Uh, as a matter of fact, lobster fishing wasn't that great in Eastport back then. Uh, it was more scalloping, uh, hand lining, mm -mm -mm. then aquaculture came in. A lot of people that, that were traditional fishermen uh, had cage sites and uh, uh, that's the way aquaculture started around here was small uh, guys that run the water anyway, they had cage sites. Right now there's only one real large uh, company do it, Cook, Cook Aquaculture, who they do a great job, thank God they're here. A Canadian company, Cook Aquaculture came to Maine in 2004 and is now the sole operator of the salmon pens in Passamaquoddy Bay and Cobbscook Bay. Most of these pens are not visible from the downtown waterfront in Eastport. But Cook has been an important part of the economy for almost 20 years, offering steady employment opportunities on the water. 
This is especially important in the last 18 months when, because of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, to name just a few global shifts, Eastport has had to let go of most of the men and women who work in the port. Shipping right now from the port is not doing great right now. Uh, we're in a real slump that way. So, uh, you know, that was a fairly good employer. But now, you know, really it's a skeleton crew just to kind of, you know, hold our place in the world market. Eastport's deep natural harbor of 65 feet is something that sets it apart from other working waterfront towns in Maine. We'll hear more about Eastport's shipping history from Chris Gardner and how Eastport is holding its place, as Dean says, in the world market. The greatest blow to the port's shipping was that Eastport's major export was wood pulp that shipped internationally. But the pandemic changed global and domestic markets. Remember that toilet paper shortage? Suddenly, there was a need domestically for paper products like toilet paper and paper towels, and there was less demand for ships loaded with wood pulp heading to Europe from this far eastern port. So then you don't need as many ships coming and going, right? So it's a market change, a market change. But, you know, the, the port has shipped out things. Well, the port's imported windmill blades. It's exported everything from granite to logs, to cows. The other day we had a cruise ship. But Eastport isn't a touristy town. It, you know, I'm gonna be uh, pushing up daisies before that happens. You know, there's, it's gonna be a long time before Eastport really is a, compares to Bar Harbor. No, it ain't gonna be like that. But it'll, it'll, it'll take smaller cruise ships that have maybe one, two, hundred people on them. Esport has been able to accommodate a variety of different industries in the last few decades, partially because of the planning that went on in the downtown waterfront. And even though the city is seeing that slump in shipping, they've still positioned themselves to respond to changing industries and an ever-changing global market. To hear more about Esport's cargo ports, we say goodbye to Dean at Moose Island Marine, and head down the small hill to the Eastport Port Authority offices, where Executive Director Chris Gardner's office overlooks the breakwater. Eastport's Port Authority was founded in 1977. And like all of Eastport's waterfront planning, it was not an accident. During the 1970s, Eastport was at a crossroads. The town was embroiled in a heated debate about its future and identity. Here's Chris Gardner. The reason we exist is in um, the mid-70s, uh, Pittston Oil Company wanted to come to Eastport, Maine and set up a huge oil refinery here. In 1968, the Pittston Company, a coal corporation, began plans to build an oil refinery operation that would essentially have taken up one-third of Eastport and the city's airport. And the reason why it was such a discussion is that Eastport during the late 60s and early 70s was on a series of, I mean, a, a pathway of massive decline. You know, it was built around the sardine industry and ground fishing and all those things, and that stuff had started to really dry up. And, you know, Tim Sample famously, infamously, I should say, once quoted that, you know, he was headed to Eastport to the vacant building festival, right? That's, you know, we laugh and we chuckle, but the reality was there was some truth to that. And, and the community was dying and trying to reinvent itself, and some people saw Pittston as a chance to, to do that. And a lot of it's the attraction was our depth of water. And it split the community in half. You know, there was that 
quintessential down east, angry town hall meetings. You know, you've, you've seen every Stephen King movie that's had one in it, right? Those town hall meetings are immortalized in the Salt Institute Journal of New England Culture in an article by Pamela Wood that describes the heated debates among Eastporters at the time. In 1968, city council initially approved the sale of the airport to Pittston Oil. But by the late 1970s, the corporation had ruffled feathers when they said that they'd bulldoze the airport. Suddenly, the town was up in arms. No one would push Eastport around. For years, the Pittston question split Eastport City Council and residents. But ultimately, the town decided that the sale of the airport to Pittston should go up for a community vote. In December 1981, 460 residents voted against the sale, with 382 voting for it. Just 78 votes and some court rulings later, and Pittston was out. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. Today's show is about Eastport, Maine. And this story is from Galen Koch's podcast series called From the Sea Up. When a city makes a decision like the one Eastport made with Pittston Oil Refinery, it changes the trajectory of the community. It was a moment when the town pivoted. A huge corporation was offering Eastport a way forward, but the city decided that its future should be in their control. And that future was the port. You know, this community built its, uh, you know, literally built its foundation around the, the bounties of the water. So if we've lost that, and we can't reinvent ourselves by that, we're an island of 3.7 square miles. We need to go to the water to find our future again. So what they did is they said, uh, we'll set up the Port Authority. And they said they wanted a specialized board of individuals that their sole responsibility, elected by the community, was to redevelop the waterfront. And, you know, it, it's not City Hall Port Authority. That's the uniqueness of us. It's City Hall Port Authority. Co-equal. Co-equal branches, if you will. Eastport established its Port Authority in 1977, as rumblings about the Pittston deal were causing anxiety within City Council and among Eastport residents. The first cargo ship arrived in Eastport in 1981, when the cargo port was still downtown, on the L-shaped breakwater. By the time Eastport's 1991 Comprehensive Harbor and Waterfront Plan was written, the tiny strip that is Water Street was seeing 60 trucks of logs per ship carted through downtown. To quote that document, nearly every available parking lot in the city is used for log storage. As a result, the Comprehensive Harbor Plan proposed that the city move shipping operations to what locals call the backside of the island. The Estes Head Pier now, the backside of the island as we call it, um, they built that because the community, although falling in love with the port, and it's been a huge part of what and who we are, it was also right in the downtown area and people thought too many trucks, too much activity, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, call it an embarrassment of riches, I don't know. It's God love it, the New England curmudgeon, right? Whether it's glass, glass half full or half empty. Not, not here. We, oh, we'd kick if we were in swimming, right? So they found something to complain about and decided that, well, the port needs to be somewhere else. We want to keep it, but it's got to be somewhere else. So that's why they decided to build on the backside of the island. 
Transitioning shipping to the back side of the island, the side with tons of space, allowed Eastport's downtown waterfront to remain viable for commercial fishing, while expanding the shipping opportunities for the town. A win-win, as far as I'm concerned. So that pier opened up in 1997, and and that's been ongoing ever since. Chris takes us to Estes Head Cargo Port, and it is pretty remarkable to see. There's a 635-foot pier, two deep-water berths. The beautiful thing about the 97 pier is it made us the deepest natural seaport in the continental United States of America. We have 65 feet of water at our lowest running tides, and the only port in U.S. territories that's deeper than us is Valdez, Alaska. So as a result, you know, that makes us very unique. On top of that, we're also the most northern, most eastern port in the United States. There's 133,000 square feet of warehouse storage, about 10 acres of flat storage, and a bulk loading system, basically a conveyor belt. The 10 acres of flat storage is just by itself awe-inspiring. You can fit a whole lot of wood chips in that amount of space. This was our load of wood chips that was supposed to go out in September. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. Can you do that for me? Mm, yeah. No. Can you Photoshop them? Yeah. Does, um, can you still use them? Yes. Okay. That's they, they, they have a shelf life of about another year. Okay. But, but still. Esports shipping is at a standstill. In the spring of 2022, when we're at Estes Head, there are piles of wood chips with nowhere to go. Chris sees the port as the link between land and sea, between Maine's forestry resources and ocean resources. The Port Authority has invested a lot of time and money in the systems at Estes Head, hoping that a market for wood chips, green energy for Europe, would be in high demand. But the pandemic and unforeseen global conflict has meant that, for now, esports' future remains uncertain. So, yes. As things change, we have got to be prepped and ready. Being prepped and ready means constant reinvention. In September 2022, the first cargo ship returned to Eastport. And the city invested in a crane to load containers onto barges headed for domestic locations. For Chris, the key to maintaining Eastport's position in a global market is resiliency and creativity, and remembering what makes the city so unique. And I'm hoping that the good people at the great state of Maine and the legislature and the governor's office and all those who make the policies are recognizing that water is our future. It very much can be. We have something that Iowa doesn't. The ocean. As of January, Chris Gardner will be stepping down as the executive director of Eastport's Port Authority. He leaves behind a port that is ready for the next chapter, even if they are struggling through the current one. Back in Chris Gardner's office in downtown Eastport, we get a full view of the breakwater. A lobster boat pulls into a slip, and fishermen use a small crane to load bait buckets and lobster traps onto the stern. There's a hot dog stand and scallop draggers tied in the lee of the breakwater. We are blessed. We're blessed beyond blessed in the sense that that structure you see out there, there isn't another one like it in the state of Maine. There just isn't for the fishing community. By that, you mean the breakwater? The breakwater. The breakwater is just a, you know, we had it rebuilt and, you know, it houses you know, 50 fishing boats down there. And each one of those, make no mistake, is a small business in Maine, right? Every single one of those guys down there and gals. 
innovation and investment from the city and Port Authority, as well as grants and individual funding, supports the working waterfront infrastructure for wild fisheries and aquaculture here. And in Eastport, these industries, industrial cargo and commercial fishing, have found ways to coexist not just with each other, but with small cruise ships, tourism, an active arts community, and recreational boaters. So we're very unique here in Eastport because we are where everything melds, right? I think we are a micro, we are a study. We're a microcosm and a study on working waterfront of how, you know, multiple, multiple users can coexist. There is such this, you know, polarized choice, it seems, that's being pushed on the coast. Are we, are we tourism or are we, quote unquote, working waterfront in a more, you know, commercial fishing or are we industrial or literally a 3.7 square mile island I just talked to you about. We have a fishing community. We have a tourism community land-based. We have a tourism community based upon transient boaters that come in. We have a tourism industry based upon the fact that we have cruise ships come in here. And we also have an industrial base on the water in the cargo port. We also have, and it, it needs to be mentioned when we talk about fishing, we have, the, we have a very strong aquaculture presence here in Maine. So I, don't, I think we've, I don't know if there's a, a constituency that we've left out when it comes to working waterfront, literally, and all of them not only coexist, but thrive, cooperate, lean on each other. As Eastport enters the next chapter, there is strength in this small city's ability to pivot, to respond to changes in weather, markets, fisheries, and industries with, in the words of Chris Gardner, resiliency and creativity. This city's history and planning provide lessons for other main towns, We'll be visiting five other waterfronts this season, Gouldsboro, Southwest Harbor, Deer Island Stonington, Booth Bay Harbor, and Cape Elizabeth. Stay tuned for these stories of resilience, creativity, and change along Maine's coast. Thank you for listening to From the Sea Up. This episode was written and produced by me, Galen Koch, and assistant producer Olivia Jolly for the Island Institute. Nicole Wolf takes the beautiful photographs that accompany this episode. From the Sea Up's senior editors are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josie Holtzman. Additional audio editing on this episode by Liz Joyce and Claudia Newell. Special thanks to Camden Hunt, Hugh French, Dean Pike, Chris Bartlett, and Chris Gardner for their help and participation. And thanks to the SALT Institute and Pamela Wood, Hugh French, and Lynn Kippix Jr., who together researched and wrote the 1983 journal publication, Esport for Pride. Most of the music in this episode is by Q Shop. You can hear more of their tunes at www.cue-shop.com. From the Sea Up is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands through a partnership between Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. To hear past episodes and for more information, visit www.islandinstitute.org podcast.
was Galen Koch wrapping up our first story on today's Coastal Conversations featuring how Eastport, Maine is reinventing its waterfront in light of many changes moving up the coast in recent years. As you just heard, this was the first episode of a new From the Sea Up podcast series on Maine's working waterfronts produced by Galen Koch in partnership with the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, and Maine Sea Grant. We'll be sure to bring you more of those episodes in the coming months here on Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Our next story today looks at Eastport's waterfront from a different angle. This one is called The Drama of Eastport Tides and was pulled out of the Coastal Conversations archives from the Salts and Water podcast produced in 2017 by radio storyteller Rob Rosenthal for Experience Maritime Maine. But first, a fun side note for listeners who are curious about Maine's legacy of storytelling and documentary studies. In our first episode today, you heard narrator Galen Koch mention the Salt Institute Journal of New England Culture and an article by Pam Wood as a source of information for Eastport's waterfront story. Pam Wood founded the Salt Institute of Documentary Studies in 1983. Rob Rosenthal, our next narrator, then founded the Salt Institute's radio program in the 1990s. Since 2016, the Salt Institute has lived on as part of the Maine College of Art in Portland. So, in 40 years of producing great radio, Salt stands as a model throughout the nation for storytelling, documentaries, radio, and podcast production, and more. A lot of great Maine stories have come out of that program, and you can check them out at the saltstoryarchives.com. But, I digress. Let's get back to our second story for today, The Drama of Eastport Tides. This next story features Eastport's defining geographical characteristic, its phenomenal tide. We'll explore why this incredible natural feature exists and visit one of the largest confluences of whirlpools in the world. And we'll hear from the salts, people with deep connections to the sea, whose lives are shaped by this natural wonder. Here's Rob Rosenthal with the drama of Eastport Tides. September 8th, around 11 o'clock, just a half hour after low tide. And I'm at, whoa, Carrying Place Cove. And I'm walking out on the mudflats here, which stretch, well, I'm not really good at distances, but it's easily half a mile, I'm gonna say. Could be three quarters of a mile out. That's how far the tide has receded here. Just sinking up to my toes and my sandals. A little worried that I'm going to hit some place and be up to my knees in less than a second. One of the defining features, no, actually, maybe the defining feature of Eastport, Maine, is the ocean, specifically the tides and the currents. They are, in a word, dramatic. This mudflat is a perfect example. Nice, dark, rich mud. Most of the day, Carrying Place Cove in Eastport is covered by water. But at low tide, there's no ocean to be seen. And getting up to my ankles. I have to say, the further out I go, the dumber I feel. Why did I think this was a good idea? Whoa, okay. <laughs> oh, my sandal almost came off. This one won't come out. There. Phew. Okay. 
This is my turning around place. Oh no. Now my other sandal's stuck. There we go. Okay, so if you visit Eastport, maybe you shouldn't walk out on the mud flats. You can say, I did it for you. Instead, if you'd like to experience the dramatic tides in Eastport, and there's that word again, dramatic, if you'd like to experience the tides and not get covered in mud, try this. At low tide, head down to the fish pier. It's on the waterfront in downtown. Look for one of the ramps on either side of the pier. I'm walking down a steep ramp down to a boat slip. And when I say steep, I mean, I mean steep. Like I am holding on to a railing, I'm gripping with my toes because I don't want to slip uh, and uh, slide into the ocean here. Down at the bottom, standing at a small boat slip, I'm so far below the pier, I have to crane my neck to see the top. It's dead low tide right now. In Eastport and the surrounding area, like Lubeck and Campobello Island, tides average 18 feet. Now that means if I was to stand here on this dock for the next six and a half hours or so, I'd be lifted up 18 feet. I wouldn't have to crane my neck to see the top of the pier. I could practically hop on it. But of course, I'm not going to hang out for six hours. Instead, I'm headed to see as much as I can of the powerful tides and currents here, including at this, including a huge gyre, an area of whirlpools called the Old Sow. Talk about dramatic. This is Salts and Water, stories from the coast of Maine. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Salts and Water is a podcast series from Experience Maritime Maine. Salts for salty, earthy people, water for the ever-present ocean. On this episode, the drama of Eastport Tides. I have never seen ocean water bubble and swirl and twist about so much. It's like we're in a cauldron. This is the Old Sow. It's a spot off Deer Island, New Brunswick, that's crazy with whirlpools. And believe me when I tell you, that's not the sound of the water at the back of the boat I'm on. That's one of the whirlpools, spinning around and around and around. It mysteriously appears in the water maybe three or four feet across, then just as inexplicably, it disappears. And not just one. There are a dozen whirlpools just like it on this side of the boat. It's remarkable. How many whirlpools are we talking about? Oh, there can be 50, 100 there at times. Six inches to, say, four feet. Whirlpools on a big tide can get uh, 12, 20 foot across, four feet deep. That's George Harris Jr. from Eastport. But call him George and he probably won't answer. Everyone calls him Butch. He runs Eastport Windjammers. Butch takes people whale watching and out to the old sow. Why is it called that? I've heard because years ago, just the way it sounds from shore when it's, when it's dead calm, it sounds like an old sow. It makes a lot of racket. Why so many whirlpools in one place? It's where three currents actually collide and trying to squeeze between two points, Deer Island Point and Dog Island Point. It's a giant bowl that's 300 feet deep. Bob Peacock is a harbor pilot. He guides huge tankers through the waters around Eastport. And as the water piles into that bowl coming from three different directions, it gets it spinning. And that's why there's a whirlpool there. I've kayaked in a bunch of places along the main coast, but I'll be honest, there is no way I'd kayak through the old sow. We tend to call kayaks... Widowmakers, 
for good reason. There's times to play around in it, and there's times not to. I'd say around 10, 12 years ago, there was a boat carrying boxes of salmon smolts. He come around the point and get hit by one of them currents. Actually rolled the 80-foot boat down, and all the boxes slid to one side, and the boat rolled right upside down. There was three guys on the boat. Actually, they walked right around the bottom of the boat. They was lucky another boat hadn't be coming by and picked them off. The ocean floor here is hilly, not just at the Old Sow, but everywhere. Run an 18-foot tide over these hills, and you get fast, rapidly changing currents, sometimes up to six or seven knots. So it's not just the Old Sow that mariners need to watch out for. Bob, the harbor pilot, he says wherever you're sailing, it's extreme boating. Lubeck Narrows, Passamaquoddy Bay, Head Harbor Passage, the tides and currents around Eastport get your attention, as Bob puts it. For instance, a ship that comes here from Norfolk where there's, you know, a small tide, five, ten feet, they get up here with a 20-foot tide and they get scared to death. I leave here and I go to St. John and there's a 30-foot tide. It kind of catches my attention. The pilots from St. John and I went up to Minas Basin once in Nova Scotia where there's a 50-foot tide and it got all our attentions. Strangely, People on land need to be wary of the water, too. Take the two kids Bob told me about that got stuck in a jeep on a sandbar. Tide came up quick, one of them died. Or the MIT professor who was crossing a rocky sandbar near East Quaddy Lighthouse at the tip of Campobello Island. He decided to walk across and the tide caught him. His wife went in after him and the pilot boat in Campobello got him, um, but he'd already expired by the time they got there. She survived, but it's going so fast across that bar, go 10 knots across that bar. And it's colder than hell, you know, so that's another issue, you know, your feet get numb, you don't walk so well, you know, that kind of thing. But there's been a lot of people washed off of there. When I say you live or die by the tide, I mean exactly that, you live or die by the tide. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today's show is about Eastport, Maine. This story, called The Drama of Eastport Tides, is from Rob Rosenthal's series called Salts and Water, produced for Experience Maritime Maine and previously featured on Coastal Conversations in 2017. But tides, of course, are timeless. So let's get back to our story today about the tide in Eastport, Maine. Don't read behind us. Eight o'clock coming towards us. The tides bring life, too. Lots of life. Back on the boat, Butch spotted a minke whale about 30 feet long. On a typical day on the midsummer, we'll see two or three finbacks. Probably 10 minkies, hundreds of seals. Well, occasionally you see a tuna fish jump or a shark. Early summer we'll see three or four eagles. This time of year, September, it's nothing to see 50 or 60 eagles. Why is all that here? No, just because of the feed in the bay. We have krill and plankton and herring. Probably the most herring I've seen in 20 years in Eastwood area. So it's, that brings in all the wildlife. Food, dinner. Yeah, food, that's what they're here for. So we're getting uh, really good minke whale sightings out here on the bay today. 
Uh, I, I live here. I live locally, so uh, I do this every once in a while. I've never seen them come this close to the boat. So those are really, it's really special. It's really exciting. What's your name and where do you live? I'm Penny Geisinger, and I live in Trescott, which is just outside of Lubeck. I'm uh, Sue Milligan, and I'm from Oxford, Maine. What do you think of all the water? It's, the tides and the current and the it, color and the light. And it's the... amazing and it changes. And to watch the fog banks roll in or look off in the distance. And we taught a lot of um, main book, Robert McCloskey books. And it looks like his books. It feels like his books felt when you read them. Pretty amazing place. Make way for minkies? I'm not sure I read that title, but it's been a good one. <laughs> you don't have to be on a boat to see whales. It kind of blew my mind, actually. I spent a day on Campobello Island. I brought my passport with me because it's Canada, just saying. Anyway, I hiked across the rocks where the professor was caught off guard and out to East Quaddy Light where minky and finback whales saunter by. I didn't even need binoculars to see them, although they would have helped. As I poked around the shoreline, I ran into a college science class on a field trip. Hello. What are you guys looking at? Oh, just... Everything. <laughs> We're just looking. It's a marine mammal and pelagic bird class from UMM, from down in Machias. I just saw one. Oh, yeah, there, there it is. Yeah, another one. Oh, wow. Pelagic birds, by the way, tend to live most of their life on the water. Birds like Jaegers and Shearwaters, Gannets and Razorbills. There's a good chance you'll see some here, and so much more. Why study marine biology here? You can drive 10 minutes away, not even, and you have the ocean right there, and it's your lab, or we can just take a casual drive to Canada and look for whales. (laughs) You can't get this anywhere else. And we can see, like, just even in areas like this, just all the biodiversity just in the intertidal zone. You have the algae there, and then underneath the algae, you can find sea urchins, you can find sea stars. You can just find a whole array of organisms that you can just study right over here, and you don't get that too many other places. You don't get that too many other places. I wonder if that should be the tagline for this part of Maine. In fact, that quality attracts a lot of artists to the area around Eastport. In particular, back in the late 60s and early 70s, about the time of the Back to the Land movement, a lot of artists moved here, many from New York City. Painters and sculptors, printmakers, filmmakers, poets. Why move here? Well, for one, housing was cheap. Apparently, you could buy an entire house for the same amount you could rent one for a summer in Provincetown. For another, to escape. Eastporters sometimes say, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Well, that's appealing to some artists, a chance to avoid the bustle and competition of the city. This neck of Maine is still a draw for artists. For instance, the Tides Institute and Museum of Art runs an artist-in-residence program. Every year, several artists from around the world spend a few months here working and exhibiting. You don't get that to many other places. The same could be said of the photographs of Lisa Tyson Ennis. It's a beautiful spot, isn't it? It's about a half an hour before dawn. A slice of silver sky at the horizon colors a flat, calm ocean. This is Lisa's time of day. The sun is just gorgeous on those clouds. What is it you're doing? Just connecting the camera to the tripod. I like very low light uh, because it doesn't leave a lot of 
contrasty shadows, just a very soft light. And it also allows me to have a long exposure, which is what I'm really after. So it means starting early. Lisa is a fine arts photographer, and she makes photos like I've never seen before. I doubt my words will do justice to her work, but I'll try. Lisa's images of the Maine coast are arresting, truly arresting. They're ethereal. Photos of the shore and old fishing wares and ramshackle buildings photographed as though through the murky haze of time. In fact, time is an essential element of her photos. Lisa prefers long exposures. She'll leave her shutter open for 30 seconds, a minute, several minutes. The long exposure will uh, bring the clouds through scene. It'll soften out the water. Um, and it makes this composite of time being captured on film, something we can't see with our eye. Uh, so it's always this absolute thrill to see the developed film and see something that we can't see. Lisa moved to Lubeck with her husband just a few years ago from Philadelphia. We are here because of this landscape. I feel a real connection to the environment, which I didn't have when I lived in Philadelphia. I'm very, very aware of, through all my senses, I would say, of the ocean. You know, the hearing, the changing tides, you can pretty much tell what tide it is by the sound. Obviously, the smell and the feel of the fog on your skin, and then just the incredible visual beauty, and it's always, always changing. It's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Um, and it has these very dark rocks in the very blue water, uh, which, of course, I'm shooting black and white. The water will end up looking sort of smoky white. I always try to put as little in the image as possible, so it's very quiet, narrowing it down to the most basic that I can get it. Since I spoke with Lisa, I've thought a lot about what she said regarding her images, that she attempts to capture the most basic. It seems like that impulse may be born, in part, from this place, the area around Eastport and Lubeck and Campobello. Maine, and down east Maine in particular, are often thought of as the edge. Think about it. It's the last place on the east coast of the U.S. before Canada. Maine's boldest and rockiest coast bears itself against the cold North Atlantic here. And of course, there are the dramatic tides and the turbulent waters. It's raw like the reversing falls in Pembroke. It's slightly out of the way, down a couple of dirt roads, but worth the drive. The current is so strong, there's like a standing wave right in front of me. The water is just roiling hard. It's like it's boiling out in the middle of this river. When the tide comes in, it creates a waterfall in one direction. When the tide goes out, the waterfall reverses. Crazy. In Lubeck, down Water Street, there's a little park with a fisherman's memorial. I counted 113 names, confirmation of water's power here. 
and the hazards of fishing. Right past the memorial, there's a jetty. I don't know if you're supposed to walk out on it, but I did. Seals gather here, waiting for dinner, delivered right to them on a current that rips past the rocks. The seaweed is just swaying back and forth like it was wheat in an open field in a strong wind. And of course, there's Quaddy Head State Park in Lubeck. You've seen pictures of the lighthouse here. I'm sure of it. It's the one painted with red and white stripes. It sounds wild here today, but this is actually pretty calm. The waves are only two to three feet. And what about that boat dock I stood on? The one next to the fish pier in Eastport. Well, today's Thursday still, but now it's about 4.30 in the afternoon, high tide. I was here a little over six hours ago, and I walked down a ramp to get down to a slip, and it was incredibly steep at that time. But right now I'm gonna walk on it, and it's certainly not flat, but the angle going down is so much easier. I don't have to hold the railing. I'm not gripping with my toes like I did last time. I'm on the slip, and uh, earlier when it was dead low tide, I had to crane my neck to see the top of the pier. Yeah, well now I can just easily reach up and tap my hand on the top of the pilings. The tide has come up 17 and a half feet today. It's just incredible. Salts and Water, Stories from the Maine Coast, is produced by Experience Maritime Maine. We invite you to visit the website, experiencemaritimemaine.org. You'll learn more about the state's maritime traditions and plan your visit here. This podcast is sponsored by Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors. I had production help from Abby Levin. Thank you, Abby. Thanks also to the Tides Institute and Museum of Art in Eastport for their research help. Our theme music is from Ketza. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Please listen to more episodes of Salts and Water, including stories about women lobster boat captains in Stonington and a swashbuckling fishmonger in Portland. I'm Rob Rosenthal. was Rob Rosenthal in a 2017 episode of the Salts and Water podcast series. Thanks for listening to our show today on Coastal Conversations. If you want more information about the stories you heard today or to hear the other episodes from the two podcasts we featured, including From the Sea Up, where our first story originated, or Salts and Water, the one you just heard, please check the Coastal Conversations webpage. Just do a search for Maine Sea Grant and you'll find a link to Coastal Conversations from the homepage. In the coming months, we'll be sure to feature more stories from the Sea Up as they visit five other waterfronts this season, including Gouldsboro, Southwest Harbor, Deer Isle and Stonington, Booth Bay Harbor, and Cape Elizabeth. We love this idea of featuring Maine's coastal towns on our show, so we may also dip back into the archives from the Salts and Water podcast featuring Stonington, Searsport, Rockland, Bath, and Portland. Until then, thanks for listening. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. 
Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Seagrant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.